Welcome to Pilgrimage. My name is Mike Angel. I'm one of the priests at Holy Communion. And in this class, we are introducing some of the sort of basics of the what our presiding bishop calls the way of love, uh, looking at questions and how we live Christianity in the Episcopal tradition. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to be talking about sacraments and particularly communion. So I want to sit for a few minutes with these questions of communion. It's one of the questions that comes up the most when we talk about the tradition, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time on it tonight. Uh, and at the same time, I'm I'm realistic that I could talk about this topic for years. So I'm going to stay pretty basic. First, just where we are, uh, we're several uh, classes into our introduction. This is our second class on prayer and specifically looking at communion. And originally I was going to walk you through step-by-step -step communion liturgy. And I made a couple of attempts at that and I decided I'm not gonna do that. I wanna talk about the sacraments and about communion, about Eucharist more broadly than if I took you step-by-step -step through a Eucharist video. If we wanna do that later, we could talk about it in the class on Monday evening and I'll do it, but, uh, but it didn't seem like a good use of our time. So sacraments, um, whenever I say sacraments, it immediately puts me in the mind of a, a undergraduate professor I had named Bernie Cook, Bernard Cook, uh, who always, uh, whose book was titled Sacraments and Sacramentality. That is to say, we're gonna be talking about sacraments broadly today. And I think it's important to understand that the Episcopal Church, no, kind of no matter how you slice it, is a sacramental church. Uh, you just saw a picture of one of our celebrations of Eucharist. Here's another one from an Easter vigil a couple of years ago. And we're a sacramental church. We believe in sign and symbol and we, there's so much to the way we do worship that takes time to explain. It was an understanding in the early church that you couldn't get it all before you were baptized or confirmed, that uh, a catechism class, a class that prepared you to become a Christian, to enter into the sacraments, uh, couldn't teach you everything, that you had to keep going afterward. And I think that that's true. It takes a life to live through your understanding of what it means to be a sacramental Christian. Uh, but that sort of breaks with a tradition for some folks. So I wanna talk about what is a sacrament in the Episcopal Church. Uh, what often comes up, especially for folks that are looking at our faith from the Catholic perspective is, do you believe in the seven sacraments? Um, the Catholic, teaching on the sacraments is a pretty systematic teaching on the sacraments. At least it has been for a thousand years. The first time that seven sacraments were enumerated uh, was about a thousand years ago, about, which puts it about a thousand years after Jesus. So for about a half of the life of Western Christianity, there's been this idea of seven sacraments. And the short answer for Episcopalians, as it is for many things, is yes and no. And I have to own that this is my perspective, uh, and this is a lifelong and multi-generational Episcopalian, but 
I know that there are Episcopal priest colleagues that would disagree with me on the way that I'm about to say this, but this is my perspective. Uh, the Episcopal Church does have all seven sacraments, and we don't necessarily count them all as sacraments. Some of my colleagues absolutely would, would absolutely identify with seven as the number. I identify more with the idea of two sacraments and then a whole bunch of sacramental rites. That's a Roman Catholic distinction between sacraments and sacramentals. I would say that baptism and Eucharist for you know thousands of years now, 2000 years, have been understood since the very beginning of the church as critical to the ministry of Jesus. The other five that get named in Western Christianity are also important, are also ways of living that out, but they just have a different relationship to church history and to the Bible than baptism and Eucharist do. Anglicans all across the world have embraced baptism as Eucharist as we always call them sacraments. The questions of confirmation, unction, confession, holy orders, matrimony, we've sure had a lot of arguments about those. Uh, and we have them in the Episcopal tradition. You can have your confession heard. That's probably the rarest one of all of them, in all honesty. But it's a it's an open question, I would say, how you count. Um, and it's but but Anglicans agree there are two, and we have all seven in the prayer book. And if you are looking for a church that would allow you to live a sacramental life like what you had in a previous tradition you can come into the Episcopal Church either from a more Protestant place that would only identify uh, baptism and Eucharist, or you can come from a Roman Catholic place and be nourished by the same sacraments. It's pretty tricky. So what is a sacrament in Episcopal tradition or Episcopal teaching? So we actually have, it's time almost to fess up, but we have in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, uh, something called a catechism. And when we say it's a catechism, it's it identifies itself as not similar to what the Roman Catholic Church would call a catechism, like the Baltimore Catechism. There is, though, a definition of a sacrament, which is an outward and physical signs. Sacraments are outward and physical signs of inward and spiritual grace. We'll talk more about signs in a little bit. But there's a playfulness in Anglicanism with language. There are a lot of poets who are Anglicans. And I think part of it is that we like language that likes us to, that allows us to define things broadly, that allows people to find multiple places to sit within the tradition. And our definition of a sacrament, I think, does that. It doesn't require you to take a very particular position on things. It might make you have to be a little bit uncomfortable sharing space with folks who don't think about it the way that you do. I say that I want to share um, when I was in college, I grew up in a particular time uh, and I spent a lot of high school and college summers going to Dave Matthews Band concerts. And one of my favorite songs by the Dave Matthews Band is a song called The Christmas Song. And it's essentially a narrative life of Jesus. It's Dave Matthews version of the gospel. But when Dave gets to the Last Supper, he sings a line that says, take this bread, think of it as me, drink this wine and dream it could be. I went to a Roman Catholic college and I remember friends getting upset. They're like, such a good song, the Christmas song. Why did he have to say, think of it as me? 
we put a lot of meaning into words. We put a lot of meaning into the interpretation of sacraments in our tradition, and we do it for identity. I want to go through baptism and Eucharist and a couple of those questions really quickly and try to push out on the other side of the anxieties that we bring into these questions. So baptism. What do we mean by baptism? This is a picture of my spouse, Ellis, in a early church baptismal font up in the Galilee in Israel. And you can see how deep this font is. Uh, early church baptisms looked a little bit more Baptist. Uh, early church baptisms involved a great deal more water. Early church baptisms largely were adults being baptized. The charged question in baptism often is, do you baptize infants or do you baptize adults? And in the Episcopal Church, the answer these days is yes. We probably baptize quite a few more infants than we do adults at Holy Communion, but the way that the rite is set up, it assumes adults and then makes provision for infants. If you're somebody who came from a tradition where you didn't think that children should be baptized until they reached the age of reason and made the decision for themselves, the Episcopal Church is fine with that. If you're somebody who grew up in a tradition where family gets anxious about getting a kid baptized, the Episcopal Church makes room for that too. But it's an example of a charged question around a sacrament. It's also a example, baptism is, of a way in which we can get all wrapped up around sort of ephemera. Even the Roman church anymore doesn't teach that not being baptized endangers your soul. Let me say that again. The Pope a few years got rid of limbo. It was this idea of a place where babies could go if they hadn't had the chance to be baptized. The Pope said, yeah, we don't actually need that. And it's meant that this idea of needing baptism for salvation is not as much of an anxiety in the Roman church. Anglicanism tried to get rid of that anxiety at the Reformation. We've always seen baptism as an outward sign of the inward grace that God has already done, the salvation that God has already accomplished. Yes, it matters to claim that, to sign it in the midst of a community, but it's not required for entrance to heaven. There's not gonna be a UV scanner uh, to check whether you've been baptized at the pearly gates. The meaning of baptism has shifted over time. Actually, baptism may have shifted a little bit less than just about anything else, but the meaning of these sacraments and what we mean by them has shifted a great deal over time. A lot of the understandings of baptism were built in the early church when adults were making adult decisions to convert into the faith. And it takes a lot of interpretation to map that onto an infant essentially being named as part of a faith from the very beginning, named as part of a family. So the meaning of sacraments has shifted over time. We could do a whole class about that, but 
hold on to that one because we're going to spend most of our time today talking about the most charged. Uh, and I put this picture in on purpose. I would ask you what it was uh, if we were in class together, uh, standing around looking at the slides. And everybody who grew up Roman Catholic would be able to tell you, and everybody who grew up Methodist or Baptist would be just utterly confused. This is a monstrance. This is where you put a consecrated wafer so that the congregation can kneel and adore and be in the presence of Jesus. There are Episcopal churches that will do adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. But this idea of Eucharist, this idea of communion, gets at what I like to call the problem of transubstantiation. Usually when we talk about Eucharist, we get asked one question, one primary question. Well, two, we'll get to the second one in a minute. But the primary question is, do you believe in transubstantiation? That is to say, does the wafer become actually the body of Jesus? And I want to take away that question from you, but I can't. So the answer is tricky. The answer is an Episcopalian, you can be as into transubstantiation as you want to be. And as an Episcopalian, you can believe that transubstantiation is a Roman Catholic thing that has nothing to do with the Bible or your faith. And both are in bounds. And people may be in the same Eucharistic celebration receiving communion next to each other and be believing slightly different things about it. Transubstantiation became the watchword of identity at the time, well, really in the time after the Reformation. This idea of what is it that you believe is happening to a wafer became the place, sort of the the. I mean, it's fitting because we're talking about sacraments. It's, it's the symbol of where you are on the question of the Reformations, uh, the questions of the Reformation. And so Roman Catholics were taught, this is what makes you Catholic. And Lutherans were taught, this is what makes you Reformed. And Anglicans tried to diffuse the whole thing by saying, we believe in the real presence of Jesus and everybody who believes that Jesus is really present can be part of our tradition. That's our answer to transubstantiation. Luther talks about consubstantiation, this idea that Jesus and the bread are both there at the same time. Anglicans are cool with that. Uh, you know, Roman Catholic theologians, the Council of Trent doubles down on Aquinas and says, the substance changes, the accidents may not, but the substance changes, that is to say, the thusness, what it is of Eucharist, it becomes physically Jesus of Del Vatican II, where they say, well, chemically, but, uh, but Jesus is really, really present. That's essentially the Anglican position. Jesus is present. It's actually also the Orthodox position. The Eastern Orthodox Church never gets sucked into this question of transubstantiation. And so if you ask an Orthodox uh, theologian about, you know, how is Jesus really present? They'll say, it's a mystery. Anglicans tend to like that answer. It's a mystery. Uh, Jesus is mysteriously present. But it gets at this problem. We've defined who we are in faith around the question of what happens in communion. And so we only think about that question, what happens to the bread and wine? And I would argue that limits us. That limits us.
So as I said, um, this is actually a slide from the last time, but I wanted to re-emphasize it. We're a via media tradition. Real presence, which is the Anglican answer to transubstantiation, means that there on the left, you've got St. Paul's K Street in Washington, D.C., where almost everybody you ask in that place is going to believe that it's transubstantiation. And the tabernacle is kept right in the middle of the high altar. The priests always face the back wall. They face, um, in this case, it's not actually east. It's, it's liturgical east because uh, All Saints happens to be oriented north-south. But they face the altar away from the congregation. There's incense. There's elevation. The whole thing is chanted. It almost is in Latin. And then just a couple miles away down in Alexandria, you got this teeny tiny table underneath a giant pulpit. Uh, and everybody there would probably kind of shrug their shoulders and say, eh, I think Jesus shows up. But there's a, and these folks are saying the same prayers. They're in the same tradition. So it's kind of, for Episcopalians, it's less of an identity marker, the question of transubstantiation. You can believe in it. You don't have to believe in it. And you can share a church with folks who are on both sides of the question. So I actually want to disengage from the question of transubstantiation. I, I don't want to spend the rest of my time talking about how Jesus is present and arguing about, you know, Aquinas saying that if a mouse got a piece of consecrated wafer, that the mouse wouldn't be receiving Jesus. And whether that means that Aquinas even thought about transubstantiation, we, I mean, we could have a whole thing. I want to think about communion and the time we have left through three different lenses. I wanna talk about more than just what happens to a wafer. So the first is, this is a sacrament of a meal. I really want you to listen to, to watch and listen to the presiding bishop's video about communion uh, and about what it meant for his family to see people sharing the bread and especially the cup. But this is a meal. And Jesus's meals were radical. This is in scripture. But Jesus's meals were radical because they included all the wrong people. Jesus's table didn't have the usual cultural walls around it. And it was enough of a challenge to the systems as they were, that it really was something that was remembered about Jesus. When we gather at church on a Sunday outside of the pandemic, you'll hear me say the words, whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith, you are welcome. Welcome to receive the bread and wine made holy. That scandalizes some people. Jesus's table ministry scandalized folks. One of the things that I think is a measure of how well we're doing our job at making communion is to look around the congregation and say, how wild of a fellowship of this, uh, how wild of a fellowship is this? How wide of a diversity of human beings is gathering around this table right now? Because Jesus probably wouldn't have settled for anything yet less than the whole neighborhood. The meal and who is invited matters when you think about communion. Memory. So I made reference to Dave Matthews a little bit earlier. Uh, take this bread, think of it as me. This question about memory really matters. 
the teaching of the sacraments about what does it mean to remember Jesus is important. It's central. There's a famous Anglican theologian at the first half of the 20th century, a monk. We've got monks in the Anglican and the Episcopal Church called Dom Gregory Dix, who wrote a huge, huge book. It's not one of the resources I recommend because it's just way too thick and academic. But at the end of it, he talks about how in communion, when Jesus said, do this in memory of me, never has a command been so honored, he says. For 2,000 years, people have been doing this in memory of Jesus on shipboard, across the planet, at the hardest moments of life, in prisons, in great cathedrals, on dining room tables. Folks have been remembering. Folks have been doing this in memory of Jesus. Never has a command been so honored. But I had a professor in seminary, she's actually a Roman Catholic nun, who asked a question about memory. You know, there's all this teaching about what memory does. And in the Hebrew tradition, zakar, the word for memory, you don't remember, it's not just a mental exercise. To remember in Hebrew is to reenact to and and more than just to reenact it's it's to make present you know just as in the seder meal uh, the people become present again to the story of exodus to the story of the escape from pharaoh's bitter yoke and just as they remember their destination the seder always finishes with next year in jerusalem we remember I heard Richard Rohr, a Franciscan monk and contemplative teacher, one time say, when we remember Jesus, we remember Jesus. Jesus comes back together in our midst. There's something mystical about memory in the sacramental sense, this remembering of this Last Supper. But when Jesus says, do this in memory of me, my professor asked, what is the this? What is the this? Is it just breaking bread, sharing a cup? Is that what the this is? Or when we say do this in memory of me, when Jesus asks us to do this in memory of me, is Jesus pointing to what's going to happen in the next day? Remember, communion is a memory of the Last Supper. Jesus knows what's ahead. Jesus knows that he is headed to the cross. And so are we being asked to offer our lives out of love for the sake of others? Is that what we're being asked to do in memory? Memory can be tricky. Memory can be dangerous. Memory can ask big questions of us which gets us to the last piece around sacrament and sign. I've talked about signs a couple of different times, uh, but a sacrament is say, an outward and visible sign in the Episcopal church. And you can think of signs in a, in a pretty literal way and, you know, road signs, you know, my two year old can tell you that if you see a red octagon, it means stop. 
where does communion point us? Is the point of communion to engage us in intellectual debate? Or does communion hope to point us somewhere else? I would argue that for the last several hundred years in the church, we have gotten too focused in on the question, what happens to the bread and the wine? And we've not been focused enough on the question, what happens to us? When we gather together with the wide diversity of God's beloved human beings, when we hear scripture broken open, when we pray together, when we share a radically hospitable meal, when we remember Jesus, what does it do to us? Can we live in the same way in the moments after communion? Does it point us out to walk in the direction that Jesus walked? Does it pull us into the mission of Jesus out to the lost and the least and the lonely and the left out? What is transformed? Bread? Wine? Us? We'll talk some more about communion. We'll talk some more about sacraments. I hope you can join us on Monday evening, uh, and we'll be looking into whatever questions you want to look into. Uh, this is one of the more charged presentations. But I do want to leave you with that the idea, if a sacrament is doing its job, what is transformed? Thanks so much.